0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. And we get into the weeds uh, on your texts and tweets and comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, the ups and downs of designing roller coasters and new Irish research could lead to therapies for non-responsive epilepsy. Uh, First, though, uh, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me via the internet is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway. You're both very welcome. Jess, our first story.
2: So this is new research coming out of Hokkaido University in Japan, and basically they were taking samples from different carbonaceous meteorites that landed across the globe. In Australia, the USA, carbonaceous? Canada. Carbonaceous? So full of carbon. It's different types okay. of meteorites. Um, and previously, um, researchers had found two of the four pieces of the kind of encoding parts of DNA, right? So these are the nucleotides, you know, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, you know, A, G, C and T, like you might hear about them in terms of that's how information is encoded into DNA. Um, and previously, two of them had been found in meteorites, but not the other two. And this is like since the 1960s. So there was this kind of question of like, why are we only finding two? <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense, given what we know of life. Um, but it also then kind of raised these questions of, you know, are, are two of them coming from space? And where do the other two come from, potentially? But this new research has actually now found all four on these meteorite samples, and they're basically just using new chemical and spectrographic techniques. Um, So the, the technology has improved quite a bit since the 60s, and it's thought that the two that are being found now as well, cytosine and thymine, basically those are more delicate and were breaking down more easily in the chemical analysis techniques used before. So this kind of implies that actually all four of these pieces of, of how information is encoded in DNA can be found on some types of meteorites. So the same research group had actually previously done this study where they basically showed that you know if you used um, light and different chemical analyses on stuff that would be on these types of meteorites in space, that you could potentially generate all of those four nucleotides. So it, to me, this is really interesting because it kind of implies that on all of these meteorites that are sort of forming you know throughout solar system formation not just in our solar system but throughout the universe we might be getting these building blocks of life which then you know if they land on a planet like ours that has the right conditions for life to continue developing they're kind of seeding that planet with life Um, so this is really interesting and kind of exciting you know because sometimes you think about the universe and like are we alone in the universe you know is our planet just uniquely the one that was able to come up with the building blocks for life and not necessarily, right? Like this could be happening all across the universe. Um, and there's crucially going to be some um, sample return missions soon going to this type of meteorite in space and coming back with a sample that we can look at. So, not just something that's struck the Earth and gone through whatever that process involves. Um, NASA's mission coming up on that is called OSIRIS REx. And that will probably provide more information on, you know, whether. This idea of, of the DNA pieces on on meteorites around the universe is, is true. Um, so it could confirm this or or not. Uh, but to me, it's just really exciting to think of it that way.
0: Ruth, as a geneticist, how complicated are these bases that that make up DNA? Because when when I heard that building blocks of you know life would be found uh, can be found on meteorites, I assumed it was sort of you know uh, minerals and and elements. But we're talking about you know fairly. I would say, sophisticated um, things on these rocks.
1: I mean, they, they are sophisticated, but they're not hugely complex molecules. I mean, they, they become complex when they're all put together in a strand of DNA making up genes. But as Jess says, some of them are more fragile than others. So it's. I, I thought this was really exciting research.
0: There's nothing biological about these bases in and of themselves, though, right?
1: No, I mean, they're made up of things like carbon and hydrogen and oxygen, the elements that we see in space, on Earth, everywhere. They're just put together in this amazing way that forms this incredible structure called DNA.
0: Ruth, our second story has to do with measles. And I saw a really interesting article uh, a few days ago that was saying to to, to basically anyone who communicates science, stop calling anti-vaxxers anti-vaxxers because there's a hell of a lot more vaccines out there.
1: Yeah absolutely and and you know people are talking about measles particularly because the number of cases of measles is really surging at the moment all over the world and public health experts call measles the tracer disease and and the reason they do that is because it's one of the most contagious diseases that we have vaccines for so you need about 95% of a population to be vaccinated to have Herd immunity. So when you start to drop below ninety-five percent vaccination, you start to see outbreaks of measles, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, we've there's been about twenty-one large and disruptive measles outbreaks. Uh, so over seventeen thousand cases, uh, mostly in countries like Yemen, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and that's because, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. While we've had a huge uptake of vaccines, of the COVID vaccine, we've had huge disruption to sort of basic vaccination campaigns for children uh, to prevent these diseases that we've prevented for years. Um, And we're seeing outbreaks in other things as well. We're seeing huge outbreaks in flu uh, in places like Australia because because vaccine fatigue is setting in, people are getting booster after booster and they're kind of just getting seems getting tired of getting vaccinated.
0: So what you're saying is some of that lack of measles uptake isn't necessarily to do with the anti-vax sentiment, but also to do with disruption to regular programs because of COVID in, in sort of the global south.
1: I mean, I think the latter is probably the main reason. But the other thing where we're seeing this happening first is in countries where there is conflict. And actually in in, in in sort of the European continent, Ukraine has been one of the countries already with the lowest vaccination uptake rate. So there's real concern that we're going to start to see outbreaks of these infectious diseases there. But, but in terms of the whole term anti-vax, I think what the science is telling us now is that sort of demonising people who want to ask questions about vaccination doesn't work, you know. We have to allow people to ask reasonable questions about this choice that they're going to make. I mean, science will say it's the right choice, but we we have to allow those conversations to happen.
0: Uh, Do do you have any information on how we're doing in terms of um, measles outbreaks and, and those sort of things
1: here in Ireland? I mean, actually, just in news this week, we did hear that visits by public health nurses to babies has have gone down by by 50 percent. Now, that would concern me because the public health network, uh, the public health nurse network is a really important way that parents get access to vaccine information. But but I know we've worked really hard here in this country to catch up on all those childhood vaccines uh, that were missed during the, the pandemic.
0: Jess, our third story has to do with Broadband and uh, a new thinking on twisted copper pair.
2: Yeah, so twisted pair copper wires are what uh, we use for telephone communication. And depending on where you live, that might be where your broadband is coming through. Um, but like in, in existing copper broadband connections, they're usually going at a frequency that's below one gigahertz. So basically the current is changing a billion times a second, which sounds like a lot. Um, but research It really it, does. It it does on our terms for sure, um, but uh, research out of the University of Cambridge has actually found that in theory it could be possible to raise that to five gigahertz, so you know five billion times a second, um, using a small, cheap, and pretty easily available component called a balun that basically would allow a lot more information to be going through those networks. And now, you know, obviously in in Ireland and, and lots of parts of the world, people are trying to switch over to fiber optic cables, which have higher information rates but you know, it's expensive to replace all of those cables. Um, sometimes in very rural areas, it's, it's not easy if like one person or like five people would need their connections replaced. Um, and so this new research is actually really interesting because it's using the existing infrastructure. Um, and the researchers have estimated that about three gigabits per second could be feasible using existing connections. Now I compared that to my own internet speed um, in my house here in Galway city, it would be about 12 times faster than my speed. I'm not on fiber. Um, But I think this is especially interesting for the 9% of households in Ireland who have no internet. Um, And obviously, this is more often happening in rural areas. It's often places that don't have any mobile network availability either. Um, So if you just have a telephone line, this could be a solution to get, you know, reasonably good internet, um, even out in the boonies.
0: No, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, this national rollout plan that we have been uh, really waiting to to kick in and fully roll out, it just seems like... um, we we just won't get to where we want to when it comes to delivering fibre to every home in Ireland. But if you, if you look at those homes at nine percent, all of them have a telephone cable, and and that telephone cable is made of twisted copper wire. Because um I used to fix these when I used to work in BT uh, and and punch them into these large um patch panels many many years ago. Th- though that that simple twisted copper wire could soon deliver not not perhaps fibre speeds, but very close to it. And certainly as much as we need right now in 2022, which is so far from where many households across Ireland are. Our final story, Ruth, has to do with creativity.
1: It does. Uh, as many companies start to navigate the return to the office, um, you know, I think a lot of companies have been trying to identify, well, why, why do we need to go back to the office? And there's kind of been this anecdotal evidence that, you know, things like, creative work is better done in person. So researchers in Columbia University and Stanford University decided to put that to the test in a very large study that was published this week in Nature. So in the first part of the study, they recruited over 600 people to to take part and they put them into teams and and half of the teams met in person and half used video conferencing software to to meet each other. And, And the task that they were asked to do was to come up with a creative idea for a product in five minutes. And they were given either a Frisbee or bubble wrap as the sort of uh, raw material for their product. And so they had five minutes to come up with ideas. And then they had to pick their best suggestion for a further minute. And the researchers then evaluated the number of ideas that each team had generated, but also the quality of the best ideas. And the results showed that those meeting virtually produced around 15 ideas on average, but nearly 17 ideas were generated by those who were meeting in person. Uh, So about 17% more with the in-person teams. And the people who were in person were also judged to have come up with more creative ideas um, so for example they had independent judges who said that if you used the frisbee as a plate that was less creative than using it to you know harvest fruit from a tree or using the bubble wrap to send Morse code messages was more creative than wrapping a baby up in it to protect it That's um, true. It probably is objectively yeah. true. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so, so in-person teams generated more creative ideas, and their best idea is better. Now, when it came to the second part of the task, the which was asking the teams to pick their best idea, the teams did did equally well. Um, so, so that was a, a kind of interesting result, and maybe validating some of that anecdotal evidence. But, but the researchers then repeated this with nearly fifteen hundred engineers at a big telecommunications company with offices in various different countries around the globe now now they did get similar ideas but there there was a bit of a nuance here Um, the quality of the final idea wasn't judged to be better in in this circumstance and and there was something interesting here and possibly one of my favorite lines that i've ever read in a a research paper Uh, one of the sites in poland did their meeting in a hotel room and and actually what they found was participants exhibited rampant non-compliance, including a notable preoccupation with the hotel's catering, coffee and cookie station. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so they actually looked into this in more detail because you might say, what's going on? And, and, and obviously, distraction was a big issue, but there's a sweet point of distraction. So when they, they did a second subset of, of analysis with the, the laboratory pairs and they looked at the gaze. So how the way people were looking at their partner in the exercise and they found that those who were on the virtual call spent nearly double the amount of time looking directly at the person that they were working with. and. You might think that would improve the connection or the creativity, but in fact it, it doesn't um, and they they check this again by placing random objects in the physical and and the virtual rooms, so things like bowls of lemons or odd posters with funny pictures on them, and actually found the distraction with those objects improved creativity in both situations ah. Yes. Yeah, so their hypothesis is that really your mind needs to wander to be creative. And um, so, so if you're having this intense gaze, because you know it seems rude to look away from someone if you're on a video call with them, but that doesn't give your brain the ability to sort of come up with creative ideas because we, we've sort of narrowed our field of focus so much.
0: Yeah, that sort of fits with my own experience in trying to get people to, to be creative. You need something to spark off sometimes. Um, Ruth Freeman and Jessamyn Fairfield, thanks very much. All right, on the way, the science of roller coasters. Yes, you're welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. This is our weekly science program. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Now, I used to like roller coasters, but as I've gotten older, they instill in me a, a certain sense of dread. And, and my stomach just can't take them anymore. And my son is now getting to an age where he wants to to go on these things. So we recently went to Tato Park um, to go on the Kuchulin uh, roller coaster. And as I um, joined the line, I started to get very cold feet. And as, as it was my turn to get on, I'm not ashamed to say I backed out. And my son, who was too short to travel without me, was also not allowed to go. Um, and so I don't know what that roller coaster feels like. But I'm, I'm going to say to our next guest, I'm still sticking with that decision because I heard the screams. Um, Corey Keepers is an engineer and partner at the Gravity Group. He uh, designs roller coasters for a living and he designed the Kukholan wooden roller coaster. Um, which is something else by all accounts. Uh, Corey, thanks uh, for joining us on the program. Um, Before we we go into the the science and physics of of roller coasters, were you um, the sort of kid who had a dad that would take him on roller coasters or was your dad a bit like me?
3: Oh, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. Um, You know, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, growing up, um, my family took us every summer to uh, an amusement park called Cedar Point. It's a rather famous park in the United States, known for its roller coasters. And uh, ironically, my parents never rode roller coasters. And so they <laughs> they kind of kept us off roller coasters as well. So I would go to that park and ride the log flume and some of the spinning rides. But uh, roller coasters, they had an, a really small one called the mine ride that that we'd ride. but. You know, it wasn't until uh, a couple of years later when my brother and I were no longer riding or we weren't walking around the park as a family that really I started riding everything at the park um, and it just opened up a whole new world and a passion. And my brother and I growing up like we we were really we loved visiting Cedar Point. And so we came back from Cedar Point and he had this huge closet in his room. And we built a little amusement park, um, you know, based off of like two little stuffed animals or something that we had using cereal (laughs) boxes. And we we had a string with a straw on it and a balloon that was kind of like the aerial tram ride. (laughs) But, uh, you know, eventually I think my brother, he he grew up and he evicted um, the rides and and stuff that I had. And so it moved and I I used Legos and racetracks like Hot Wheel track type things and had this little amusement park in my closet
0: so this sounds like something you were born to do Corey. now you build and design roller coasters for real um and i'm wondering how you go about um uh, approaching that because obviously one of the limiting factors is the space that you're given to build a ride in uh, how big it is and what it's beside and so on but i'm wondering most of your roller coasters are wooden is is wooden and, and that material a limiting factor
3: The design and build process of a roller coaster uh you know especially a wooden roller coaster it uh to me it's like a 9 to 13 month process that i mean i I don't know this for a fact i'm a guy but i think of it kind of like um childbirth or or like having a baby like you have (laughs) no but i mean they're they're like 9 to 12 months where and they're difficult months you know like you there, there are good times and there are bad times, uh, like any construction project, and then at the end of it, this roller coaster is born and you, you ride it the first time and you forget about all the troubles that you had because it's just like such an amazing, uh, birth, uh, essentially that that's happened with this new ride. And as far as the material, I mean, wood is, wood's an excellent building material. And, you know, I was just reading an article about some skyscrapers that they're going to start building out of wood. And so we have rides that have drops as, as much as, uh, you know, like Cucullin's like 30 meters, but there, there are some wooden roller coasters that are getting in the 40, 50 meter height range. And wood is still a perfectly suitable ma- material for that. In terms of the physics, you know, when we're when we're designing a ride, often the site, like that controls the, the the size ride that you can put into a site but money <laughs> money is is also one of the the true factors that that comes into the design like how large they can go and with a wooden roller coaster you know most wooden roller coasters that exist have a traditional chain lift where you go up a chain and so you're, you're being lifted up a height and they're when you're doing that, you're creating something like potential energy, you know, like you're going up high. So there's a potential that when you fall, it's going to (laughs) hurt, you know, (laughs) and and so like the more and more potential energy you have, then when you go down that drop, that gets converted into, uh, you know, what we would call kinetic energy, you know, the energy of motion. And, uh, you know, that's where if I go up, I want to think in feet. So I apologize. But if I go up 30 meters, you know, when I get you know, 25 meters down, you know, all of that, that energy, which is like gravity times height times mass converts into, um, velocity, you know, and, and we have some loss. I mean, there's, there's friction, there's, there's wind, there are different things like that that we have to factor into our designs as well. And so, you know, really when we're designing a ride, we're using a, a toolbox, of, of some of the basic physics principles that, you know, you might learn in a, in a good high school or or college class. Yeah. Um, Now naturally, I mean, we, we have, (laughs) there's high school physics and I have had a little bit more education than that, but, (laughs) but really it, it, it comes into, you know, all this centripetal acceleration. And, and if, if there are students that are in classes and they see, you know, this person that swings a yo-yo around their head and, and, you know, like how, how fast if they cut the string and, and all of that, like, that's the basis of, of so much of what we do. And we write programs. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting here with my my calculator drawn like, <laughs> well, if I'm 30 <laughs> meters tall and then I subtract the, I mean, I don't like we have some beautiful programs that, that we've written because we're engineers. And, uh, you know, I had a professor at university that once said the best engineer is the laziest engineer, you know, and, and, <laughs> and what he was saying is it's best if you can simplify something or if, if you can automate something, you know, come up with a way to work smarter, not harder.
0: Well, that's one side of it, right? Understanding the physics, what will keep the car on the track. And that's really important when you're designing <laughs> yes. a roller coaster. Yeah. But you also need to understand human physiology as well, because there's only so much jerking around the human body can even uncomfortably take, right? So, um, how do you figure out what sort of effect your ride will have on the human body um and 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 what sort of limits are there i mean does everyone feel the same experience with their own body doing the same ride
3: yeah no i mean it's very different um you know for me i like to test all of our rides out on my kids and and see their effect actually that goes back to ancient rome right when a bill when a bridge was built the, they would have the engineer and his family sit under the bridge and then the Roman army would march across it <laughs> so, that, so that if it's a bad bridge, the whole uh, lineage is gone. It's like a, a Darwin thing or something. Wow. But no, like for, for us, for rides, um, I mean, a wooden roller coaster is, it, it, you know, it's been hundreds of years, you know, that, that people have been building wooden roller coasters now over 100 years. So, I mean, we have a lot of history to build on. Um, there are codes in like America, in Europe, in China, wherever you go in the world. To uh, there are standards for designing rides, and they set g-force limits. And when I'm talking about g-force limits, like one g is like if I'm just standing here, I'm one g, right? But if if you push down, like if I'm being pushed into my seat and I feel like I'm two times my body weight or three times my body weight, that would be me feeling two or three gs. And on a roller coaster one, I mean, all we're doing is we're messing with the G's that, that you feel, right? And when I'm, when I'm at the, at the valley, at the bottom of a roller coaster, like I'm being pushed into my seat and that's positive G's like, and typically on, um, on a wooden roller coaster, like you can have, if, if your positive G's get too high, you know, you, you can black out, like you can pass out. Right. Yeah.
0: Does that, does that happen very often?
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, that's why we have standards. But, <laughs> but uh, essentially, for, for us, like if we go three, four G's, like you can do that for a, a period of time, you know, like three, four seconds or whatever, when you're at the bottom of a hill, because everything, everything is going fast on a roller coaster. It's all about pacing, right? And so there are some roller coasters, some steel roller coasters where you might for milliseconds, uh, achieve something in the in the five, six G range, you know, and, and in that, you might gray out a little bit when I, and everybody is different, you know, like I can go to a local amusement park with my kids and we can ride a giga coaster, which is, uh, what, 300 feet tall. So that's, that's what, like 90 ish meters or something. And if we ride that and on some of the turns, they're, they're so forceful that I can feel myself if I'm a little dehydrated or whatnot, just kind of like blacking out a little bit and my kids, they can be completely fine. Yeah. And so, Um, You know, the key is when when people are designing the ride, they they know if I'm going to be in this high G moment, there are limitations set in these codes that say, okay, you can only be at this range for this long. And that's what we do. I mean, we essentially uh, we know the limitations that are set in these codes and we make sure that we're well beneath it. And then from a wooden Mm -hmm. roller coaster standpoint. Um, you know, we're dealing with wood and, and it can feel different, whether it's, if it's dry or wet, uh, the, the, the feel of the ride can be different. Like we might, even if we could go to four or five G's, like we might set a limitation that that's a little bit less than that, you know, so <laughs> to be
0: kind. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I'm, for me, uh, you know, a wooden roller coaster is really uh, all about the airtime. And, you know, if you would have, braved the Kukulin Coaster, you would have had 19 I'm locations. so sorry. I'm well, so it, sorry. It, it does hurt my feelings a little bit. If I would have known, I may not have had this interview.
0: I, that's what I said to Aiden. I said, don't tell Corey that that happened because he may not agree to to, to do the interview but, but uh, in terms of airtime there's quite a lot of airtime in that right that's why people Correct. scream
3: yeah yeah i mean the airtime to me that's the weightless feeling like if sometimes people say if you're in outer space or you're an astronaut you'd be floating around right airtime is that that sensation that you're gonna you fly out of your seat it's, it's zero g's so it's it's weightlessness but on a wooden roller coaster like we like to go a little bit further so we might go you know, a negative, you know, a quarter, half or or one G even in some spots. And so you get kind of yanked up. And uh, for me, it's like when you're on a swing set and you're a kid, right? Like you love that moment right before you go backwards where you have that weightless feeling. And we're just accentuating that on on a wooden roller coaster. You know, we're bringing out that child in you that really love that sensation. And then we're pushing you into your seat. We're we're going around a corner and, and, you know, slamming you to the side. I mean, that's that all of the different tools in our toolbox. You know, we're, we're creating these different sensations on the ride. You know, we're trying to bring you up on your side at 90 degrees or we even have wooden roller coasters that go upside down that have inversion. So,
0: yeah, I mean, that sounds fun in theory, but um, how do you go about um, checking everything before you put people in these rides? Do you use like, crash test dummies or something? We have
3: a water dummies, or we'll fill the train with a ballast of some sort, and then we have accelerometers—some really uh, expensive, fine accelerometers—that we we do g-force testing on the ride. And in these amusement standards, they tell you where to mount your accelerometer and and how to set it up so that it best, um, you know, replicates. Like, you know, am I, am I at the heart level of a human being? Like, the, there's a lot of stuff that is, is based on where, where a human would be sitting. Cause I mean, you don't want to just mount your your accelerometer uh, in any location. So, nice. I mean, we've, we've done accelerometer testing on the rides. Um, we've taken parts of our cars and done um, like strain gauge testing. I mean, there's a lot of effort and energy that goes into making sure that these are safe and fun. And to me, when you do that first accelerometer and then you, you look at, like we can actually overlay the accelerometer data with our design data and look for locations where, you know, maybe something didn't quite look perfect, you know, and then we'll go out and we'll inspect the track and do some measurements. And, and the great thing about a wooden roller coaster is it's wood, you know, it was built board by board in the field. And so we can go and we can make some changes as needed, but, you know, by and large, you know, uh, we're here in uh, 2022 now, so there's a lot of science and engineering that goes into everything we do.
0: I was going to finish up by asking you what your most terrifying roller coaster is. Of all the ones you've worked on, which is the one that really pushes out the the G-forces or really brings people as close as they can tolerate? What country has the least restrictive um, uh, rules and, and how, what, how far have you pushed it?
3: Oh, uh, no, I think, you know, what's interesting is If you look at China, Europe, America, Australia, like all all the major uh, country groups, there's something called a harmonization of the the codes that's happening right now. So it's very similar wherever you go. They they have the same high standards. But what I will say is, like recently, we've been renovating a ride in, in France, and I just got back from there. It's a place called Park Asterix, and this, this ride, it was called Tener de Zeus, and now they're calling it Tener du Zeus, like two. <laughs> it's a French joke, I guess. But <laughs> on this ride, we, we did a first, and this is a very first thing for a wooden roller coaster. The very last car on the train was turned around, so it's backwards. So you're taking the entire ride and going backwards on this ride. And so I rode that uh, you know about two weeks ago. And it was it was just incredible. I mean, it was just terrifying. It was different. Like riding a ride forward where you see what's happening in front of you. Like that that's fun and that can be you know, exciting and <laughs> thrilling. But when it's when it's like backwards and it's all a surprise and you're you're going up the lift hill and you're kinda of leaning forward and seeing it and then you make that turn at the top and you don't quite know when you're gonna fall, like it, it was it was purely terrifying. It really was. Even so, just
0: even just hearing about it is making me feel a, a, a sense of unease.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you couldn't ride Kukulin, you probably wouldn't even get in line for that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really it was worth it though. I mean, it was so fun. It was so different. You know, it was something where it, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was just like a weird sensation. And I mean, you had the airtime, but you're going backwards, and and then you hmm. get to the brakes, and you think, what just happened to me? And really you know, if you can do something that's different and fun, I mean, that's what we're trying to do as a company. You know, like we we don't want to be like that band, that one hit wonder that night after night is playing the same song. We we are always trying to innovate. We always want to see like, hey, w- would it be cool if we do something different? And and that's where like at our company, we have a team of engineers that's designing rides. It's looking at things. So we're, we're constantly um, critiquing each other's work and, and brainstorming and coming up with different you know new ideas so you know the backwards car wow that was that was something something very different and
0: exciting all right well you know i've really enjoyed speaking with you about the science of roller coasters and how they're designed Corey. so i'm going to make a promise next time i go to tato park or whatever it's going to be called as as they rebrand i will go on your ride i promise you that
3: all right. Well, I hope I hope you do, and I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Corey Kiepert, uh, engineer and partner at the Gravity Group. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Um, if you want to see a video of that tonnerre du at Park Asterix, the one that goes backwards, you can watch a video of it on YouTube. Even watching the video makes me feel very nervous. I have to say, I'm quite a scaredy cat. It's not. It's not so much fear. It's just. Fear. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Producer Aidan McKelvey joins us to go through your comments from last week. It, okay. Look, it is it is fear, um, and just and just a. Yeah, I I don't know, I don't know. I just maybe I'm just afraid now. I'm an old, I'm an old forty five year old, and I'm afraid. When I was in my twenties, it wasn't that much of a, of a big deal. Although, I do get quite queasy. Do you Do you enjoy them? I do. Yeah. Do you, like. A-
4: um, I don't like, know Would you I go going... straight
0: for the biggest roller coaster If you went to an amusement park Would you wait all day to go on that ride
4: No I, I think sometimes I see a ride And, I'm, and I think to myself That's not going to be fun Like there's there's things that are fun And things that are just scary And I think for a good roller coaster Has to have kind of both Like I did uh, skydive which was fun, but I didn't do the bungee jump because that's just the scary part of it, the fun part of like, floating through the air. I don't understand why anyone would do
0: a bungee jump. It makes no sense. Agreed, agreed, agreed. The idea of a bungee jump, and, like, you know, all you need is one story about the rope catching around someone's limb and just burning it off. (laughs) True or not, that's me out. I'm out. Although, you know, as opposed all you need is one story of the parachute not opening, and that's also not a great outcome. Last week, we were talking about the uh, gut um, microbiome with um, a really interesting story that Lara was telling us about where uh, two mice or rats, it might have been, um, where uh, were, they had their microbiome swapped. And it turns out that the microbiome that you have influences the sort of diet that you prefer. So if if you take out just the bacteria of a, of a, a particular rat and put it into another rat, that rat will start eating what the original rat was eating. When it may not have been interested in those foods at all with a sterile, you know, with a non-sterile, but a a, a different microbiome, which is really interesting. Um, And we had uh, Catherine Cronin emailed us in. She says, interesting piece on the complex relation between our system and gut microbiome. I remember reading an article years ago. It said that network phenomena appeared to be relevant to the biologic and behavioral trait of obesity and obesity appears to spread through social ties. I was sceptical because of the heavy influence of peers on behaviours and thought something akin to, well, what to expect. Then I saw a couple of other studies some years later which seemed to control for lots of confounders and indicated the chances of significant weight gain taking off when new associations formed with higher weight companions. In other words you're more likely to become overweight when you hang out with overweight people. I also read a study indicating the weight gain correlated with frequent antibiotic use. The piece in the microbiome suggests a mechanism other than simple, simple behavioural change leading to weight gain. Perhaps a change in the microbiome related to the new environment. Maybe the gut organisms change and make different demands. Interesting episode. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So like the idea, I mean, could you get in, Inverticom infected by the bacteria of the friends you hang out with and that then... Um, increases your likelihood for obesity. I mean, it sounds crazy, but um, what we're talking about here is, you know, um, you know, obesity. As we found over the last number of years, is really not considered to be energy in, energy out anymore. That that simple physics equation is not really the current mode of thinking, and 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 that the way we've been thinking about weight in that way has been problematic. This m- microbiome thing seems very interesting to me. Um, we should probably do uh, some more. Uh, should we get that, that that scientist on the the ones who did the microbiome swap swap? Aiden, that sounds like an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, I think we could. It'd be, we might have to
4: get onto Catherine to narrow it down. She did say there was a couple of different studies, and it's not the original study.
0: No, but we could do we the don't... we could do the mouse one. That the one we covered in the news, because that would be oh, kind of relevant. Yeah, and then yeah. get would drag in some of those other papers that Catherine's talk about in the end of the discussion.
4: I think I think with the obesity thing, it's quite it's quite inter- it's an interesting angle. Um, but I kind of is like I don't notice I'm genuinely asking the question, is your gut microbiome that easily transferable by just being around someone like how how, does the tra- how would the transition happen?
0: Yeah, they've been transferring gut microbiomes for literally hundreds of years. The, the Chinese referred to a yellow soup medicine that was given um, to transfer the microbiome um by using the faeces of the of a donor um, and then transferring oh, yeah, it orally. That's actively doing to, it, though. Uh, yeah. oh.
4: <laughs> that's, that's what you're trying
0: Sorry, to do. Sorry, the I only mean. reason... I know you know that. I'm telling them <laughs> that because I wanted to gross them out. But yeah, um, that was one that was one way we... we, um, we so, uh, look, I mean, I I think there's no question we pick up bacteria from each other. I mean, like when the baby's born, they get their bacteria straight from their mum. So I think it's it's feasible to think that we might pick up bacteria from each other and not really think about it because we haven't really been looking at that closely. But would it be interesting if like obesity was more of, I mean, more of a contagious disease than we'd thought. This is total fake news science. Like we're just, I'm just completely and utterly entering the realm of science fiction just so everyone knows. But wouldn't that be interesting? We were also talking about climate change and you know the, the the tweet we got accuses of doom and gloom and I think fair enough um we do talk about you know potential um solutions uh, from time to time we're going to be talking about you know co2 upcycling um in a, an upcoming episode but yeah I mean like it is pretty doomy and gloomy although did you see Aiden that um the author Jonathan Franzen uh, sort of has been Sort of talking about There's no point We might as well give up And he's gotten under A huge amount of flack From people Because he said Like that's exactly What oil interests um, You know Those who make fossil fuels That's exactly what they want They want people to give up So they can continue Doing what they do And Nigel Farage And a bunch of other people Are trying to You know Get people to Embrace coal and oil again um, yeah. and, and you know Saying there's nothing We can do about it I suppose Feeds into that interest And I, I think You know He's he's not someone who um, He's not someone Who doesn't believe In climate change He just believes We're screwed um, and he said look that, That's just You know in Your position of privilege You can't really say that Because the people Who are going to suffer The most are those Who are already The worst off um, And I, I, I do get that I mean I was a bit Doomy and gloomy Last year And I was saying Look there's nothing that's, we're, we're done for But I think it's I, I think it's an important point that, that That means That's an excuse For people to do nothing And we need to do Everything we can
4: yeah, I, d- I also don't think that's true. I think people like uh, this thing, this kind of situation, obviously for obvious reasons, upsets people, and it's easy for your initial instinct to be either doomy and gloomy or misanthropic. But um, you know, time and time again, and usually it's for bad reasons, like this is, y- humans can be incredibly uh, ingenious when put to put to the pump. Uh, like you know, yeah, you can you can get a person on the moon in a decade you can uh, create a nuclear weapon obviously that's not a good thing because the need is there necessity yeah builds i mean, it. i'm not like, sure.
0: i'm not sure i like that narrative either though aiden because it makes it sound like we'll just come up quickly with a solution to it i don't think we will i think that's need the route to success i think the route to success is everybody slowly working towards everything rather than waiting for a magic bullet and I know you're not saying no, that no, but... no
4: I'm not saying that I'm saying that you know it, I'm not just talking about people who created say a nuclear weapon or whatever but I say like World War 2 is a terrible example it's like literally the most terrible thing that probably ever happened to the human race but it mobilised a lot of people to a specific aim and I mean like whole nations whole communities yeah. and they did things that otherwise would have been impossible and so did, so to a degree did Covid uh, and so I think it, it's like it's, it's kind of useless to be out in the public saying oh, this isn't doable, because it totally probably is, it totally is feasible to probably fix it. It's a matter of the will and getting people's will in the right place and the politicians and all that. It's certainly difficult, but uh, it's also certainly doable to fix it. That's what I would say.
0: Yeah, Um, agreed. Uh, Anyway, we got a a comment in from Chris. He says, um, interview this fellow, Ramez Nam. Uh, He would make a nice break from your climate doom and gloom. Uh, he's former Microsoft guy investor. He uh, co-chair of Energy Environment at Singular- Singularity University. I tend not to kind of speak to technology people on the program, like people in commercial technology. Um, but we'll check him out. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, absolutely, would welcome with open arms someone who's all sunshine and rainbows when it comes to climate, as long as they're knee deep in the evidence and not promoting themselves. Well, that's it for um, our comments and text. Thank you, Aidan McKelvey, producer, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound as well. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
0: Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.